0: Rupert Barrington is with me. He's series producer for The Green Planet, something that we look forward to here in India. It uh, premieres on Sony BBC Earth uh, from the 11th of April, 9pm Indian Standard Time. Rupert, how are you? Nice to meet you. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Nice to meet you too. Well, The Green Planet is, I think, quite extraordinary in that it really brings to life plants, which we always knew had life but not in the way that you've brought to life. I managed to see one episode and I have to say I was absolutely astounded. So I'd like you to to give us a, a brief overview of the entire series and then maybe we can go little by little uh, through the course of the five episodes, please.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, and the aim of the series really is to take the viewer into the world of plants in a way we have never been able to do before. There are two worlds. There's our world, which operates on our timescale and that's us and that's animals. And there's the plant world, which appears to us to be very static because they operate on a much longer time scale. So we want to take people across that time barrier to speed up the plant world and allow us to travel into that world and see what plants really do. Um, The series is five episodes. The episodes are broken down into environments. So, for example, we have a, a tropical program, a freshwater program, a desert program. And that allows us to see the particular challenges that those environments pose to plants and how plants overcome that. So I think in a nutshell, that's what we try to do with the series.
0: That's wonderful. Uh, let's start with tropical words. Uh, worlds. And uh, really, I was quite surprised. I didn't know that two thirds of the world's plant species are actually found in tropical forests. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the words of Sir David Attenborough, there seems to be intense competition in there for things like sunlight.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, that that really is the biggest challenge that the tropical world throws at plants. There is so much life crammed together that everything is battling for space and nutrients, and particularly, as you say, for light. And that battle for light drives some of the biggest plant action, if you like, in that programme. So for example, we see where a big tree falls and that opens up a gap in the canopy. The sunlight pours down to the forest floor and there there are a lot of seeds waiting on the forest floor for sun to fall, and they can wait a hundred years for a big tree to fall. And when they do, they all germinate, they all come to life, and they're all trying to grab that bit of space in the canopy for themselves. And to do that, they have to fight each other. And they, every plant has its own way of fighting. Some try and smother other plants. Some have spines to spear other plants. And it's a very it's a very dramatic event. It's, it's the sort of event you imagine animals might do because it's so active and it's so strategized. But it's actually something that happens in the tropical world every day.
0: And, and I just want to get an understanding of the countries that you, you, you filmed in. The tropical worlds, what are the kind of uh, forests in which regions did you go to?
1: We filmed... A Lot in Central America, and that is partly because during COVID, and we can talk about that later if you like, the, the restrictions COVID put on us, uh, we could get into Central America even at the worst time. So we focused a lot of our storytelling now. We also filmed in um, Australia. Um, I think those are our two main locations Central America and Australia, a certain amount in Brazil as well.
0: Excellent. The next uh, episode is Water Worlds, and indeed. Uh Some of the most bizarre and important habitats on this planet are are hidden away Mm. under the deep blue sea or rivers or lakes. And uh, that must have been a particular interest to you uh, to cover.
1: Well, it was. I mean, the the scientists will tell you the world of freshwater plants is the least known plant world. It's really very little studied and because it's under the surface of the water it's just that much harder to access and you would think, you might think at least that fresh water is a perfect habitat for plants, that the, the, the bulk of the water will hold the plant up so it doesn't need a stiff stem there's lots of dissolved nutrients and oxygen but in fact living in water is incredibly difficult for plants and they've had to come up with all sorts of very bizarre solutions to, to find a way to survive there I think it's 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 I think it's a beautiful programme, I think it's quite a, quite a moving programme quite an emotional programme I think but for various reasons, I think it's a very Special and very strange world, Rupert. I'd actually like you to give certain
0: examples. Uh, you know, if if you, for example, go back to tropical worlds, I remember seeing this little vine that you know literally lassos itself around another uh, you know larger plant or tree and tries to uh, to get some sunlight. So, any any species that it would really stand out or spoke to you and which you thought was extraordinary in the tropical worlds episode as well as the water worlds episode, please.
1: Mm. Well I think I mean you, I think you you picked on a very good one there in that battle for light where where these vines don't have stiff stems they can't stand up by themselves so what they try and do is hitch a lift up to the sunlight by just grappling over something else and that something else will pull them up it's a very a very clever strategy I think another thing from tropical worlds which I I love is the Balsa tree, which is actually very often the winner in these light gaps, because it's a tree that grows incredibly fast and it just speeds its way up above everything else. But it has very it does that by having a very weak structure to its wood, so it can grow very fast. It's not laying down layers and layers of strong wood, but that means it only lives for a short time because when it's big and the wind blows, branches snap off. And when it's time to reproduce, it produces these enormous flowers because it only has a few seasons in which to reproduce, it throws all its resources at this, so it produces these huge flowers, filled like a cup with this rich sugary nectar and they're pollinated by a little mammal called a kinkajou and the kinkajou will come and it'll drink cupfuls of nectar and the the tree can refill it has thousands of these flowers and a group of of kinkajous will travel around the tree drinking this nectar and they can refill all of these flowers seven times every night so these kinkajus are drinking gallons of this liquid every night and as they drink the liquid the pollen on one flower goes is brushed onto their face and they go to another tree and then the pollen gets brushed off onto another flower and so it's fertilized. But it's that concentration of resources that you know what we're used to thinking of a flower has a little droplet of nectar to see a whole cup full of nectar and then to refill and to refill and to refill all through the night is an extraordinarily extravagant way to get yourself pollinated. So I think that's a a wonderful story in the tropical world. I think in the Water Worlds programme, there, um, there are two things actually which I would talk about as, as being extraordinary in that film. One is the giant water menu, which is this huge lily pad that grows in the um, Pantanar, which is a region in Brazil that floods every year. And as soon as it floods, all different kinds of plants grow and they're all trying to get to the surface of the water and get their bit of space in the sun. And they're all competing, pushing each other out of the way to get that bit of space. And once it appears that battle's over and the water surface is covered in green, only then does a new bud emerge from the bottom of the water. And this thing is like a fist covered in spines and it reaches up, it pushes up through everything else and it gets to the water surface and it sweeps around and things get jabbed and pushed by these spines and it clears a the space then it unfurls into this huge huge lily pad which can be two meters across an enormous leaf as it unfurls the under surface is covered in spines and they're crushing and drowning all the other plants and eventually over a matter of a few weeks in everything on the water surface is pushed away drowned and the entire water surface is then covered by giant water lilies it's a very very dramatic scene all filmed in time lapse so you see this whole thing happening like a, a, a real-time battle it's extraordinary the other thing I think is, there are many things I think are wonderful about that film, but the other thing that strikes me and has struck a lot of people is in Brazil, a river called the Rio Claro, which is a very, very clear water, very warm. It's perfect conditions for plants. And the river bed is completely green with plants. And when the sun rises and gets at about 12 o'clock, the plants start, bubbling and they're photosynthesizing, and they're producing oxygen, but they produce it to at an extraordinary level And within half an hour that you can hardly see in the water. It's just fizzing like champagne with bubbles. And I think a lot of people have found that very moving because you're seeing plants creating the atmosphere that we breathe. And David Attenborough says at the beginning of the first program, every lungful of air that we breathe depends on plants. And here you see that visualized and it's it's a very moving scene.
0: It would segues very beautifully into my next question. I mean, I was just about to ask you, I mean, he's he's quite ageless, isn't he, uh, So. I Attenborough, I saw a picture of him going in a a cable car in Costa Rica, in the jungles, which is there in episode one. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, he must be the other side of 80, perhaps 90. And it's it's incredible that, you know, he signs up to do stuff like this. So uh, is your heart in your mouth or are you just very comfortable that he takes on these challenges?
1: Well, a bit of both. I mean, he's actually the other side of 90. He was 93 when we did all our filming. I mean, the extraordinary thing about him... And one of the extraordinary things about him is that he wants to do this. He still wants to travel the world. And it's, you know, film sheets shoots are long days, they're uncomfortable, they're hot, they're tiring, and he still wants to do it. And in a way, it's easy because you say, well, David, we'd like to put you in a cable car and you can go through the forest and that's a chance to introduce the series and the, and the tropical film. And he says, oh, okay, that's fine. So in a way, you don't worry because you know he's up for anything. But of course, you do worry because he's on the other side of 19. You want to make sure he's absolutely safe. So we do an awful lot of planning to make sure that what we're asking him to do is is manageable because he is 93 and how much, age he's, how, how much energy he's got, he's still 93. So you want to make sure that it's it's going to be okay. But he has so much energy and so much enthusiasm as much as he ever did.
0: Wow. <laughs> Quite inspirational for the rest of us. So, so let's come to seasonal worlds now. With plants, it, it's all about the timing, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. more than anything else, for them to survive, for them to flourish, considering, you know, seasons are constantly changing. It's relentless. Uh, talk about the timing of it and what, what to you is very special about the seasonal worlds.
1: Well, the seasonal world is it's that region of the planet between the Arctic and the tropical where you have four seasons, four distinct seasons. And that's really hard for plants because as you say, timing is everything. Each season is short and a plant needs to do something generally in each season if it's going to be able to reproduce or even just to survive. So to get the timing exact is really, really critical. And I think you see plants in that program doing many amazing things and often doing them pretty quickly by plant standards and having many amazing strategies. And one story I particularly like is from South Africa. It's a plant that looks a bit like a grass, a tall sort of grass plant, and it produces its seeds. And its big problem is the surface of the sand, where the seeds are going to fall, is incredibly hot. And if the plant, if a seed stays on that surface of the sand for any great length of time, it's going to be killed. So that plant somehow has to get its seed from the plant and underground very, very fast and what it, it, it's at, a, at that same time of year there's a lot of antelope moving through that landscape and they eat a lot and there's a lot of dung being produced and the dung is little black ball shaped dung and that is rolled away by dung beetles and bury very quickly and this plant has taken advantage of that by producing seeds which are the exact same size as antelope dung the exact same slightly rough texture and the exact same smell so when they fall to the ground the dung beetles think oh there's more antelope dung and they grab one of these seeds and they roll it away and they dig a hole and they bury it and dung beetles always bury it that dung to a very specific depth and that's the exact same depth that seed needs in order to be able to germinate and survive so really this plant is using the dung beetle's attraction to dung to its own ends to get its seeds buried and it doesn't because the dung beetle is very active it gets them underground very very quickly so i think it's an amazing it's one of many amazing strategies you see across the series where plants are very clearly using animals to their own ends and generally, we think of that relationship the other way around, the plants are being used by animals. But in fact, more often than not, plants have strategized how to get animals to do what they want them to do.
0: And in some cases, plants are also devouring animals. <laughs> like you have a, a predator plant in which, you know, the, the animal falls in. You know, I saw that yeah. bit. It's, it's quite incredible. <laughs>
1: but it, well, it is. That's in the water program. In boggy areas, there's very little nitrogen, which is a crucial thing plants need for growth. And so some plants, like the famous, i um, forgotten its name now, but a predatory plant plant venus fly traps sorry they get their nitrogen by eating animals and they have an amazing strategy they can cant, and that is critical to how they do it so inside this sort of opening trap a bit like that and it closes as a cage inside that trap are three little hairs on each leaf and if an animal walks across and touches one hair the trap doesn't close because that could have been a raindrop hitting it could have been a bit of leaf and it takes a lot of energy to close but if another hair is touched within 20 seconds the planters remember that and it's counting those seconds going by and wow. if two hairs are touched within 20 seconds it means almost certainly there's a plant moving around an animal moving around and then the trap <laughs> traps it but even then the plant still counts because if the animal is very small it's not really going to give the plant enough energy and it's better off actually opening up and letting it go um and if there are another five touches on those hairs within the next 20 seconds, then it will squeeze tight because that means there's something big pushing around. If there's not, it means the animal has probably got out through these little gaps in, the, in these prongs and escaped. So it's a very clever strategy to get what it wants and not to waste energy doing it.
0: Unbelievable. It's almost as though uh, you could liken it to a computerized (laughs) trapdoor with all the seconds and the the timings coded in. Uh, Remarkable. You know, when when we were in junior school and, uh, you know, middle school in India, we were taught about, uh, you know, just two species of plants in the desert. One is cacti and the other is, you know, palms. When you went to, uh, you caught an oasis, which is, you know, more mythology than anything else. But obviously with desert worlds, you've gone the whole hog. You're talking about, all the species of plants that can, that can survive with absolutely little or no water. And I'm very keen to know what uh, that that particular episode is all about.
1: Well, as you say, um, the key challenge in deserts is is water. And anything that's going to survive there has to find a way to get hold of water as soon as it falls and to keep it within its body. And then to be able to survive for very long periods when there is no more water. Water in the desert comes in the form of rain, of course. And cacti are the masters at holding water. A big thing like a saguaro cactus, which is the classic tall cactus with arms that you find in the southwestern United States. It's like a barrel. And it's, it's a barrel that's pleated, so it has these little ridges all the way around. And when it rains, it sucks up a huge amount of water through its roots, and these ridges flatten out, so it becomes much more flattened, a, a flat circle. And in fact, to film that, we had to put a camera on one of these cacti for two years to film it going from this pleated structure out and then contracting again as it used up its water. So it's a very slow process, but it's it's an incredibly effective process of holding many thousands of gallons of water within that plant for the next 6, eight, ten, twelve 12 months when there's no rain. Other strategies that plants use are not to store water for long periods of time, but when it rains, to simply grow incredibly fast while there is still water in the sand, to grow, to flower, to reproduce, to die, and, and leave their seeds for the next generation. And that's when you get these wonderful events called desert blooms. So in many deserts, they may look lifeless, but in fact, buried amongst the sand are countless millions of seeds just waiting for rain. And when you get a rainfall, which may come every 10 years in some areas, 15 years, these seeds immediately spring to life and the whole desert greens and then flowers. And for a few weeks, you have this, Beautiful spectacle of a flowering desert, and then very quickly those plants dry up. They'll have been pollinated. They'll have produced more millions of seeds, and when they die, the seeds go back into the sand and wait another decade or more for more rain. So different different strategies for dealing with that problem of water.
0: Rupert, you, you did mention the US. So I imagine you filmed in the deserts of Arizona, or did you? Uh, would you tell me the deserts that you went to? Did you manage to go to Africa? Any of the deserts there?
1: We filmed in South Africa for the seasonal film. Actually, we. Well, we did a lot in the southwestern United States. We did some in Australia. We had a sequence now was it that was southwestern United States so a lot in the USA we filmed in Chile um, so various locations dotted around we didn't actually go to North Africa for all sorts of different reasons but I mean largely throughout the series we're always restricted by finding a story which was filmable and filming plants is, is a challenge and some plant stories simply can't be filmed and it, it turned out that many of the most filmable stories were in the United States partly because they've just been so well studied by scientists there um, Mexico is another location we went to so we did quite a few dotted around deserts
0: so deserts are- Okay, that's great. And it's very poignant that in the final episode, you would ask about the future for plants in the human world. I mean, I often wonder, you know, because through jungles, we're cutting roads. There's been enough said about the man animal conflict. There's a uh, plant-man conflict too, you know. So that final episode, which is the human worlds, uh, what does it talk about, Rupert?
1: Well, that, rather than being the the challenges a wild habitat poses to plants like tropical worlds or freshwater, this is about the challenges that human environments pose to plants. And of course, they're very different nature of challenges. And the consequence of plants often having to either adapt to human worlds which some can do but many cannot is that the amount of plant diversity in most human environments which by which i mean cities or agricultural areas um, and other other disturbed environments the amount of plant diversity is going down And that is, as David Attenborough says very clearly, that is a problem because when you have a a rich habitat which is unaffected, you have a lot of plants and that's a very resilient system. You can throw a lot at it, you can throw drought at it, you can throw climate change at it and there'll be enough plants in there that can deal with that, that that environment will survive, it will continue to produce oxygen, it will continue to take in water and produce rain. But as you reduce the diversity in those habitats, they function less well. You're taking bits out of the machine and the machine no longer works as well. And of course, we depend entirely, as all animals do, on plants. So reducing diversity of plants in so many places across the planet is is a big concern.
0: Uh, Robert, uh, you've had an extraordinary career. So to, to go through all of that would take many, many interviews. Uh, but just one breakaway question away from the green planet would be, you know, when I look at your your career, I remember the turn of the millennium was very exciting for all of us. You know, we thought computers would shut the world down and things like that. And you're a serious producer on Natural History Units uh, series for the millennium year, which was State of the Planet. And if I understand correctly, that was also presented by Sir David Attenborough. So any fond memories of that that you'd like to share with us before we sign off?
1: Well, that was an amazing series to do. As you say, it was the Millennium Series. It had a lot of profile. And it was really the first time that David had an opportunity to do, if you like to call it, an environmental series to stand up and say, this is... The state of the planet, as as in the title, this is what is happening around the world. This is what is happening to plant and animal diversity. These are the problems, and also these are the solutions. The third program looked at the solutions, and it was an extraordinary experience to do that with with him, because of course he has this huge knowledge of the natural world, and he's seen so much, and he's seen so much change across his life. And I don't think anybody else could have presented that program in the way that he could with the with the background that he has. So it was it was an extraordinary experience. But I think there was there was a very interesting observation which. Having made Green Planet, I can look back on and make about that series, which is we made Green Planet partly because we thought the time is right to make a series about plants. We thought with people's awareness of climate change and people's awareness of the importance of plants and tackling that particular problem, amongst other things, we thought people would be ready to see a series on plants and to hear some of the environmental messages from that series. When we made State of the Planet in the year 2000, it was very clear that talking about the environment wasn't particularly a part of our culture and wasn't necessarily what people wanted to hear. And the response to Green Planet and the more environmental messages in Green Planet has been huge in the UK, people have really responded, felt very emotional, and have wanted to hear those messages. Whereas back in the year 2000, I think a lot of people didn't. And we didn't have the same response. People weren't really ready for what was quite, a, there were some pretty hard facts in the state of the planet. And I think a lot of people just didn't want to know. So I, th- I think culture, society has moved on across the world. I think people now are very engaged with this issue. Rupert
0: Barrington is series producer for The Green Planet. Watch The Green Planet on Sony BBC Earth from the 11th of April, 9pm onwards, Indian
1: Standard. Time. Thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it, Rupert. Uh, very interesting. Thank you. Awesome pleasure. Thank you.